Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. While growers were moving toward no-till soybeans in a big way during the 1980s and 90s, no-till corn acres remained somewhat flat. Many farmers feared they would have problems trying to no-till into cold, wet ground covered with residue. As a result, strip-till soon emerged as a compromise. Strip-till machines move residue away from the narrow row area in the fall or spring, creating a strip of bare soil. The system combines the soil drying and warming benefits of conventional tillage with the soil protecting advantages of no-till, while only disturbing soil in the row area. Rich Fulmer became an early innovator in the strip-till space after building a homemade 12-row strip-till bar in the late 80s for a friend. As the head of Progressive Farm Products, based in Hudson, Illinois at the time, Fulmer perfected the units and put them into production a few years later. For this podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Fulmer, who became known as the grandfather of strip-till, about that early strip-till toolbar, how he started building berms in the fall, his thoughts on using cover crops in a strip-till operation, the future of the strip-till industry, and much more. Well, I think you're pretty much the grandfather of strip-till and got it developed. But let's start a little earlier. Did you grow up in Illinois on a farm or what? Yep. I live near Bloomington Normal now, but I grew up about 35 miles north of here at uh, Graymont, Illinois, Graymont Flanagan area. Mm-hmm. And grew up on a farm. We had the cattle and hogs and the corn beans. And after I got out of college, to uh, which I went to college at Illinois State University in, in Bloomington Normal, and had an opportunity to work for a guy. Uh, Paul Bates was his name. And when Paul retired from farming, I had an opportunity to move back here to farm his farm. And so I've been here 46 crops just north of Bloomington Normal, a little town called Hudson. Sure. So how, how are you farming? What kind of tillage are you using? Well, a little bit of everything. We got no-till. We got no-till beans. Uh, we've got, uh, we use some strip till, and we even do some tillage with the strips first and then the tillage following it. We've got all mm-hmm. kinds of ways, depending right. on the farm and the landowner. Right. So how many acres are you farming? Uh, a little over 2,500 Oh, wow. Good for you. So tell me uh, now what happened after you got back farming and lead me into the Progressive Product Company. Well, with the Progressive Company, I kind of got into manufacturing quite by accident. I built a tillage system that was a caddy with three rows of Danish tines in 1980. And I built that system on our farm to carry a 3.20-foot soybean drill. And so we were going to till the ground and drill the beans all at the same time. 
And people saw what I was building. They liked it. Neighbors would come. Pretty soon I was selling them locally. And that's what started the business of Progressive Farm Products was that one item. Hmm. And then uh, the thing that really got Progressive going was in 87, uh, I designed what we called the twin frame sprayer. It was a wheel boom sprayer that looked much like a field cultivator frame. Followed the ground and kept all the nozzles at the proper height and that. That was really the thing that took the company and got it really going. We sold hundreds and hundreds of those all over the country. Didn't so, get into the strip till part until about, uh, started working on that project about 88. Let's, let's talk about that. What made, what got you into thinking about what eventually well, got called strip till? Well, we didn't know what else to call it, but a friend of mine <laughs> was coming down west of Springfield, and he'd been no-tilling a couple of years, and he was frustrated with, with the yields. They just weren't, he had some conventional and some no-till, and there was a horrible difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, man, he said, I got to come up and pick your brain and see if we can come up with something to save this. I want to get rid of the field cultivator, but I don't know what to do. I've tried to put some colders on the planter and couldn't get the ground warmed up and dried out quick enough. And, you know, you're putting the colders on a planter, a couple colders, and he says uh, six-tenths of a second later, you're planting the seed and you don't get a lot of warming and drying. Right. He had it all figured out. You know, but he just didn't didn't know what I want to know what you want to do. Yeah. And so I said, well, we need to work on this a while and think a little bit about it. So I started thinking about it. And you know, a month or so later, we got back together and I said, well, I'll tell you what, we need to till the ground in just enough to plant on, like maybe eight or 10 inches wide sure. and leave the rest of the soil undisturbed. And now you've got the best of both worlds. You'll have your tillage, you'll have your no-till, you'll have your conservation. Uh, it'll be dry in that strip. Well, I've already done that. I said, no, we're not going to do that on a planter. We're not going to do that. We're going to do it on a separate trip. Uh I really don't want to do that. I said, well, if you're asking how to improve it, that's the only answer I got. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we built a bar and a homemade bar 12 row and built some crude row units at first to kind of clean a path. And later we kind of perfected them before we went into actual production in 92 and uh, give him a few years to test it. And it worked pretty well. He got a little, got a black strip. Uh, he would go out and lay that out ahead of time. And then a couple of days later, when he was ready to plant, the ground was warmer and drier. And he uh, he was happy. Yeah. So then we thought maybe we hit a home run there. So we had to figure out what to call it. And the only thing we could think of was strip till. Right. <laughs> well, you've made it work. And uh... I, I I would think the one of the first visits I made to you was probably in the late 80s to see what you were going. You weren't in the strip till yet at that time, but apparently mm-hmm. fooling around with it a little. But I yes. remember we started the National Rotoids Conference in 93, and a few years later we had you speak about strip till. And I yep, remember about you. 95 maybe. I think I remember after you closed off your speech that you spent a long time out in the hallway talking to a bunch of our farmers. I remember that. I, I had this little speech, or I think I was the last one on the agenda on a Saturday morning. Yeah, yeah we ended uh, up I remember, noon, right? Yeah. And then yeah, we right. went outside, and I was checking out, you know, uh, to come back home. And a couple of people come up, started talking to me and asking me questions. And, and the next thing I know, we have a whole group of people standing around, and, and I'd answer them, and somebody else would have another one. And pretty soon, you know, I said, hey, I, I got to go home. We've been standing out here for three and a half hours talking. Yeah. 
And boy, everybody wanted my phone number, wanted this, wanted that. And of course, you know, that started uh, people thinking about it because I think guys were frustrated with the cold and the damp soil under the residue. Mm-hmm. And that was just a method to get the ground dried out a little bit without full width tillage because we didn't want to do full width, trying to, you know, conserve soil and you know, everything. And so I was wore out. Uh, that was the harder part than uh, speaking for 20 or 25 minutes was answering all of those questions. Yeah. A few years later we in Des Moines, we had an agronomist, I think, from the University of Maryland talking about wheat. And he was the last speaker on Saturday morning like you were, and he ended up missing his airplane flight because of all the... Oh, my goodness. At least, at least you were driving. You could leave when yeah. you needed to. <laughs> at least I was driving. I just, I was just tired. That was worse than working all day, answering all those questions. And yeah. a lot of guys had some really, really good questions. I remember a guy, correct me if I'm wrong on his name, I think his name is Dan Towery. Sure. He was with the conservation tillage something or other at the point at the time. Yeah, conservation. Yeah, he stood there pretty much all of that and was listening to it very intently. And I remember that he asked me a couple questions, and then finally, when the crowd broke up, he kind of talked to me off to the side a couple minutes, and he was very interested in the questions that the people were asking. I don't know if he cared about my answers, but he liked the questions. What was the immediate response from Scriptil? Did you see higher yields? Did you get the plant earlier or what? Well, both. Because the guys with the straight no-till, we were looking at that thing and and we'd have to wait. Here's the other guys running with the fuel cultivators and and whatever else, and they're running and planting, and we're waiting, you know, three, four more days before we even attempt to do that. And I'm talking no-till corn into bean stubble. And it was cold and damp underneath that bean residue, and and at the time, we we were doing an average job of spreading the pods out behind the combine in the fall. We could have done better, but things were, got better as time went on with how we handled residue. But it just was cold and wet under there. And we discovered that if you just went out and, and opened the ground up and made 8 or 10 inches is all you needed, and then the ground was nice and warm and dry. Mm-hmm. What I had seen uh, without the strip, where we did it side by side, I noticed that a couple of days after you planted without the strip that one year, it was a little bit damp, you know, and about time you could think it could run, then you get another little shower, and it was one of them kind of springs. It was a little damp, but where the strip had run, or the people with the cultivators, they, they had a dry seed bed that was warm and dry and planted fine and had good stands. The, the straight no-till that time, it was planted, you know, and it looked good when it went in and got planted and the colder opened the ground and everything. And the problem is that two days later, when the ground started to dry out, the I called it scrolling, where you'd squeeze the seed trench shut, it started to open back up from the drying and shrinking of the soil, and you could actually see the kernels. That's not good. That really got me thinking there that, uh, you know, this strip till might be a very important way to do no-till. The, no-till purist doesn't like to hear that, but uh, it's kind of a compromise between that full-width tillage, I should say. So that scrolling really bothered me because you'd lost the seed-soil contact. And again, I'll, I will clarify, it was a wetter-than-usual spring, but the no-till kind of suffered under that situation. But where the strip was run, and I remember Cliff Roberts coined a phrase that he allowed me to use. His phrase was, you're fooling the corn into thinking a field cultivator went by. 
that's pretty good. So the the idea of building berms in the fall, did you have that right from the start, or were you building them in the spring, or what? We started out building them in the fall because we, if we had time, we could get it out of the way so we didn't have to, to do it in the spring when we're sure. thinking about spraying and planting and, and all that other stuff. But I learned a lesson there, too, on a couple of our fields. We had some rolling ground uh, west to where our, our base is here, and we did them in the fall, and we got a whole lot of rain that December mm-hmm. after that fall. And it washed some pretty deep gullies down the knife track where, where the strips were laid. And so we started being careful which farm we did it and which farm we didn't. We would do the flat ground. You could do it in the fall, but any rolling grounder that had some hills in it, uh, like these couple of fields did, we would only do those in the spring before we planted. Mm-hmm. And we were using a combination of uh, liquid 28% nitrogen and uh, P and K all put down in the strip at the same time. And uh, so we, with 28, we could get along doing that very well in the spring and planting, you know, a couple of days later. And hydrus, I would have been a little more nervous in the spring planting so close behind it. But being as we were 28% nitrogen, uh, it, it worked good in the spring. It just took another day or two to do it. What kind of yield response did you get early on? That was a shocker because the first couple of years when we did it, we were over 20 bushels to the acre. Wow. Yeah, uh, and that that really, of course, all that does is get you more excited all the time <laughs> when you start coming out right. with those kind of results right out of the shoot. But I remember my buddy that I started to design this whole thing for there, he was seeing yields, you know, anywhere from 7 to 10 to 12 mm-hmm. in the, you know, west of, in the Springfield area. He was seeing pretty good yields in. He said, well worth it. And it was a homemade unit, you know, it didn't take sure. much to put it together, but but it, it solved what he wanted to do, and that, that's what kind of got us all going in that direction. Yeah, well, you know, you, you talked about no-till and the pure no-tillers and all, and you've, if you have 50 no-tillers in a room and you ask them what their system is, there's probably 25 or 30 different systems that they're doing. Yes, sir. And yes, the, same, sir. the same thing is true of strip-till. This guy's doing something, the next guy's not doing it at all, and... Uh, somebody believes I want to build all my berms in the spring. Others want to build them all in the fall. It's amazing when we survey these people how many, how what the split is between fall and spring berms. And I don't have the data right in front of me, but there's more spring berms than I would have thought they were. But then probably some of it is people didn't get them built in the fall. Well, and I noticed too what I've seen the last couple of years. There's a couple of companies over east of us here. Uh, where guys have uh, put their strips on in the fall, but then they got a spring uh, freshener tool, so to speak. Sure, right. Where they go back and they just kind of freshen the strip up in the spring, you know, just mm-hmm. mm, maybe some clods or whatever. Didn't right. winter over good, and it makes it nice and fine and makes a good seed bed to plant in. Yeah. I will say this, I learned over the years uh, in doing it on our own farm, the strip till, that we had to be very careful that we could keep that planter on top of that strip. Because if you on the side of a hill or something and you, you would get off of it just an inch or two, those corn plants, you could see them very easily. Uh, those corn plants really showed up as stunted compared to the ones that were in the strip itself, in the black uh, strip of soil. A big difference in how the plants looked and how they emerged. Those would not come up as quick. And when they did, they were kind of straggly and 
somebody said a corn plant that comes up three days later is a weed. Well, I don't know about that, but that's what they look like, <laughs> right, right? You know, and uh, so you want all them up at the same time, as you well know. You yeah. want to get the stand up and get it off to, to a good start. But I I did notice that was a, a another thing that it pointed out to myself that wow. No, there's a difference right there because the no-till is what was happening a couple inches off center compared to the tilled when you got the planter back on center and you could walk through the field and see that. It stuck out like a sore thumb, as somebody said. It really was noticeable. So then the key was to trying to keep the unit on, try to keep the planter on the strip as best that you could. GPS probably has as much to do with the expansion of strip till than anything because you could, it, it could keep the planter on that strip. Yeah, helped a lot. It helped yeah. a lot. And then now with the ability, uh, if you can steer the planter with GPS as well, now you can duplicate it even more accurately uh, with RTK. You can you could steer it to the dead center of the strip every time on a side of a hill or right. or any kind of situation. If the planter can steer itself. Uh, which uh, is is the new thing? Uh, then you've really got you've got it you've got it nailed down because what we're running into uh, with 16 row strip till barn running a 24 row planter the last couple of years that's really difficult to do uh, without some way to guide the strip bar. At flat ground it works great, but on the hillside if the if the say the strip bar wants to drift a little bit, the planter maybe wants to drift differently. It's harder to keep them on there when they don't. I like it to match, you know, mm-hmm. as best you can, the planter and the, the right, strip right. bar in configuration. Makes it a little easier. Yes, sir. It, it does. It really does. Are you using cover crops in your operation? We have some. We haven't got very much yet, but we're looking at it. We, we've tried it. Two years we've done some. And what I did notice about those, and, and uh, what started out is we started doing the cover crop because we were going to, so so to speak, get paid for it. Well, that didn't really work out the way we had, had hoped to. But nonetheless, we put them out anyway. It was rye, cereal mm-hmm. rye. And in that cereal rye, we went and planted the first year, two years ago in 2019, we planted cereal rye in the fall with our fertilizer. We just spread it with a fertilizer uh, floater truck. Yeah. And the rye come up and it grew and it looked really good. We went into spring and planted that rye. Uh, you know, it was uh, five feet tall mm-hmm. and didn't burn it down. We didn't use any chemical to burn it down. We planted it tall and then knocked it down, see. And then the thing was amazing about it, Frank, that really opened my eyes to the uh, cover crop uh, was the fact that we didn't spray any chemical on that farm all summer. Wow. On those soybeans. We had no pre-plant chemical, and we had no post-applied chemical, and we had no weeds, mm-hmm. no water hemp, no palmer, none of those nasty ones. We had no weeds at all, just a little strip kind of around the waterway, a few button weeds, butter yeah. plant or velvet leaf, but no water hemp, not one plant in the first 80-acre field that we did it on. I was I was shocked. <laughs> so, um on this berm with cover crops, so with the strip-till unit, you were able to get that rye off the berm? We actually planted that directly into the rye. There was no strips in that field. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I better clarify that. That was planted directly into the rye, no-tilled into the rye with no strips in that situation. Okay. Can a strip-tiller make cover crops work? Yes, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I got uh, friends that are doing it, uh, and we're going to more and more of that on our farm too. 
I've just been watching, you know, carefully seeing what people are doing. But we've got a couple friends west of us that are doing it, and they're they're doing all kinds of things. They got rye, they got turnips, they got radishes, they got everything, and they're stripping into that uh, seed bed to plant. Yes, sir. Yeah. So the row unit will get the rye off to the strip, yes. right? Right. Yes. Yes. We got a few people building little wider berms and then planting like twin row corn on it. Will that work? If you can get the strip wide enough, it is. I tried to build a strip bar several years ago. Uh, well, right uh, uh, right before I, I sold my business, I tried to build one for a guy out in Iowa that had a, a Great Plains twin row planter. Hmm. And he wanted an extra wide strip, so we built him a special row unit. And uh, But even then, he was on contours, and it made it hard to stay on with two rows. Sure. One's, one's hard enough, but two strip rows, uh, twin rows, made it a little harder. They were uh, eight inches apart, mm-hmm. the twin rows, on each row unit, eight inches apart. And he had a little trouble. One would be on, one would be kind of off, and that it, it needed to be somehow improved. Um, but we didn't go too much farther on it. We didn't see a lot of move to the twin row planter, so we didn't make it an actual right. production product. It didn't it didn't go into manufacturing. It was more for prototype testing. Right. Well, you're one of these farmers who uh, built some units in the farm shop and ended up putting together a pretty good business and uh, expanded it. But we don't seem to see many of these farmer shop ideas turning into companies anymore, like happened with you in the 1980s and a bunch of others. Howard Martin was another one that uh, yep. did this, and there was a number of them. Uh, yep. we, we seem to be past the farm shop ideas coming to market these days. Yeah, I used to enjoy, you know, in a lot of the different farm magazines, the publications out the back in the a couple decades ago, they would always show the farmer build ideas where a guy'd build his own planter or build his right. own whatever, yeah, sprayer, what have you, you know. And some of those guys were really fun to to read what they did and that. But nowadays you don't see much of that kind of stuff in in publications because there's more other subjects to cover. But it's kind of a lost art, you know, because I wonder today. Are farmers still building a lot of their own things? We've kind of lost track of that. When I look through your book that you sent me that you wrote, you got a lot of farmer ideas in there, a lot of pictures. And it was kind of neat what guys had worked on to come up with just to try to make it easier to farm. Right. And some of those guys out there have some great ideas. <laughs> well, in those early days, people weren't, weren't happy with the planters or the drills that were on the market, so they were more than willing to try something. And I still remember we did a story, and you probably saw it too, of the guy out of Kansas took an old combine and turned it into a no-till planter. And, uh, he had the planter mounted on the front of it, didn't he? Exactly, right. Did it that way. Yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So are you no-tilling any corn, or are you strictly strip-till? We're strictly, yeah, we're not no-tilling any corn right now. We're no-tilling the beans, but we're not no-tilling any of the corn. We've pretty much stayed, if you can do just a little bit of the, like a strip tillage or a tillage operation, it still looks like the best way for corn to me. I, I may be wrong, Frank, but I'm not convinced that we can still get the good corn yields just going out and, and planting it like before. You still need a little bit of soil work, and, and that's my opinion only of the belief that you need to do that a little bit. I got a number of friends over here east of Bloomington that no-till, they no-till straight into rye. I'm sure. a little nervous about doing that with corn into rye, uh, but anyway, they're doing it. 
but the stands are, are sometimes really good and sometimes not so. And I was at the conclusion that I didn't want any not so's. It had to be <laughs> as good as I could do all the time, not just sometimes. Right. And so I've kind of been reluctant to do that in the corn, but we do it in the beans. We got well one farm in general up north of us, a few miles, where that particular farm you have to uh, chisel plow the corn stalks and things like that, which is against our program, but we do it anyway. Mm-hmm. because it's what's required on the farm right and so we we have a little bit of so we can say we got a little bit of every kind of way of farming right now but i, I do like the no-till beans uh, we've had very good success in doing them i don't see any yield advantage of working the ground to plant beans at all right none at all so on your farm what would you say the yield advantage is for strip till over no-till corn I would still say you can get 20 to 25 bushel. I'll still make that statement today. Okay. I've had guys in the past that I've dealt with that, that's been almost 40 bushel to the acre sure. where, they, where they've where they tried some tillage. You know, I, I told a story years ago about a guy that, you know, didn't believe me about the strip till, and he'd been no-tilling for 15 years, and, and he said, my yields are just as good as anybody. And I said, well, you know, good for you. I, I don't know your farm. I just said that if you ever try to till a little bit, you know, like take and borrow neighbor's field cultivator and just work a couple rounds in the middle of a field. No, I, I'm not going to do that. And I said, well, I just was wanting you to do it for curiosity because you've had a lot of no-till history. And then right. you could tell me what it yielded. Well, he was mad at me for suggesting it. <laughs> but anyway, he come back and uh, a year later and found me. I was at Louisville exhibiting. The guy come up to me, you know, and, and I thought, oh, boy, I remember this guy. I'm going to I'm gonna really get chewed on, see. And he come up to me, and he shook my hand, and I said, how you doing? And he said, you remember me? And I said, I do. He said, I owe you an apology. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that sounds good, you know. That, that, yeah. that sounds real good. Okay, what did I do? Well, he said, uh, I did what you said to prove you wrong. Yeah. I said, I'm going to prove you wrong, and then I'm going to come back and tell you. <laughs> well, he said, I'm going to tell you what. He said, I'm to confess to you that my corn was 38 bushel better where I made those two rounds with the neighbor's cultivator compared to the pure no-till. Yeah. He said, where's my closest dealer to buy a strip-till bar? <laughs> and I'll never forget that story. Right. So what's going to happen with strip-till? Is it going to continue to grow? Is it going to cut into minimum till acres or no-till acres or what? Well, I think it's going to continue to grow. There's a bunch of people coming out. Now, I'm out of the manufacturing side sure, now. Right. But there's a bunch of people coming out with some new row units and some new ways to do it. Uh, I mean, there's, 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 there's anything. There's technology gets better as the time goes on. But we've got a young company over here just uh, 10 miles to the west of us that's uh, developing a uh, strip-till row unit right as we speak. And it, it's a nice-looking unit. It's got a lot of adjustment. I don't know the cost of the row, but I know that they've got a lot of features on it. And so that somebody, they're just starting into it. So right. uh, obviously they feel there's there's some promise into what they're doing uh, because they, they wouldn't have invested into it if they didn't think there was a future. And so I think based on watching these guys come up with new equipment, yeah, I think it's here to stay yet. Yeah. I think it's probably going to rob acres from both sides. Well, what's yeah. interesting with strip-till, I mean, with no-till, you basically go out and buy a planter pretty much with most attachments on it. With yep. strip-till, you buy a toolbar, and you can put on it anything you want. Yep. farmer can try anything, and he doesn't get stuck with what's coming on the, the unit to start with. Yeah, yeah, very true. 
We'll rejoin Frank Lesseter and Rich Vollmer in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry liquid and complete fertilizing systems as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Well, today's short note, Julia, is about how many acres you could you farm with 1,500 gallons of diesel fuel. And this came from no-till farmer way back in 1979. So if you were doing moldboard plow system, that 1,500 acres of diesel would only let you uh, farm 192 acres. With a chisel plow, it would go to 211 acres. With a disc plant system, you could get up to 254 acres. But if you were no-tilling, well, with no-till, and if you had 1,500 gallons of diesel fuel, you could do 652 acres, which is astounding, and about four times or three times what you could do with the moldboard plow. And now we'll get back to the conversation as Frank Lesseter asks Rich Vollmer about some of the lessons he's learned about strip-till over the years. Back in 2009, we did an article with you called 11 Things You've Learned About Strip-Till. And I, incidentally, I wanted to point out that you're also one of our No-Till Innovator Award winners, which you received back in 2009. I got, I got that painting hanging on the wall here. <laughs> All right, right, right. That's great. That's great. That, that was presented to me that evening. <laughs> yeah, and well-deserved. So Thank you. <laughs> let, me back, let me back up a minute. You, you sold off the company in what year? 2010. Right. What, what led you to do that? Well, it's one of those things where you start thinking about you're going to pass it down. Right, exactly. And I talked to my son about did he want to run the business and, and carry it on and keep it going. If he does, if he does fine. Yeah. Well, he said, really, what I want to do is just farm. There's a lot of headaches in farming and manufacturing all at the same time. <laughs> exactly. And he said, I, I guess, Dad, I don't want to go through what I see you go through. You're under a lot of pressure all the time, trying right. to trying to wear two hats, so to speak. And and he said, I'd just rather farm. Well, that pretty well answered my question. So I said, I am going to set out to sell the business. Mm-hmm. I don't have to sell it today. I'm going to be patient to sell it. So. That conversation took place in 2003, Frank. Okay. And it didn't get sold until 2010. It took me seven years to get the right deal to sell it. Yeah. And seven years. So it didn't just happen overnight. I had everybody you can think of uh, come and looked at me with great interest from the John Deere's of the world to small manufacturers, shortliners, other shortliners. Uh, everybody looked at it because they were looking at all the things we were doing with fertilizer application. Right. Uh, strip till was a big deal. They were looking, wanting to buy the strip till. And, uh, and of course, at that point, we'd stopped building sprayers. So that was no longer in the deal. It was fertilizer application and uh, strip till. Mm-hmm. And so it, it took seven years to get the right deal put together. So that's why I sold it uh, because if nobody can take it over, I decided it's better to try to sell it while I'm alive than to have something happen and then my wife have to try to do it. Right, right. 
And, and you know, it's better to take care of things when you still are in charge. <laughs> so you sold it out to a European company in which I can never pronounce the name crap correctly. Okay, it, it's Kongsguild. Uh, Kongsguild was an interesting company. They had a, uh, bil- a business on the south end of Bloomington Normal that was in the industrial part, not okay. in the ag part. They had, mm-hmm. they, they're in two different divisions in the world. And they were interested in my location, which, according to them, was the center of the Corn Belt. Mm-hmm. We got three interstates meet here at Bloomington. And if you draw a, a, an oval around the Corn Belt from Nebraska to Ohio, we're in the middle. Right. And from Missouri to Minnesota, we're in the middle of that Corn Belt, they called. Right. And they were very interested in it for many reasons. They wanted to strip till. They wanted to get into that. They were trying to get into it in Europe. And, and also, they... They here's the funniest one I thought. They wanted a connection to sell equipment into Russia and the Ukraine and those, and the Czech Republic. Now mm-hmm. they're from Europe and they couldn't get into those countries, but I yeah. was already selling equipment in them. <laughs> and, and 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 that was amazing because I thought, wow, they're a lot closer than we are. Anyway, right. we were doing it, uh-huh. and they wanted that connection because we already had it in those countries of selling. We sold strip till equipment, liquid side dress equipment over there. And so that was one of the things that made them look pretty hard at it. And like I said, all these other companies through that seven years looked, but these guys come in and they said, you know, we think we want this company. And so we arrived at a price. We didn't even negotiate. That was the one that shocked me. They paid what I asked. And so, Frank, long story short, I had to work for them for a couple of years after that. And then then I could retire. Well, I ended up working four years. I was head of engineering. And then they retired, my wife and I. We both stayed there until uh, 14, and then and we retired, and now we just farm with my son. And so that now the business, uh, Kongsfield has sold it off to Brandt uh, Industries out of Canada, Big big the big blue stuff, Brandt, you know, the grain yeah. handling and yeah. stuff. That's the company, a family-owned business, very nice people. I still do some things with those guys in engineering ideas because they're only two miles from my shop here. Sure. And so uh, we've got a great relationship with the Brant folks, and they've added on to the factory and doubled it and and, and wanting to do more. So right. I'm glad that the business is still running. It's just changed names twice. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's like driving by there the last 20 years, and I should have stopped many more times than we did, but you're always in a hurry going to St. Louis or something. But I was always amazed yep. at how how much you were expanding and building on every year. So we knew you were doing okay. Yes. Yep, we were pretty blessed. <laughs> right. Now, one of one of the uh, jokes about this company buying you out, and um, not really a joke, but you see them at a um, something like the National Farm Machinery Show, the Farm Progress Show, and they'll they'll have a plow on their lot, mobile yeah. plow or something. <laughs> yes, and they sold the. I always laughed about that when they brought one here one time to the factory. It was a rollover plow. Yeah. About okay. a seven bottom, and it rolled over. You know. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, you guys are in the wrong territory to sell those things. Well, we're not going to sell them here. Those are going to the state of New York. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they sold a lot in Europe, you know, yeah, where they were. Right, People right. were buying them and using them for the rollover plow. But, no, those were going to New York. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back to the article we did on you and 11 things. And I'd like to just walk through each of these. And number one is um, – Sidewall smearing is not as big a problem in strip till. Give me a couple of comments. Well, the thing is, again, like we were talking a little bit ago, when you're planting in cold, wet soil, 
with the planter, you're definitely going to get sidewall smearing. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get that scrolling, as I called it, when the soil shrinks back as the sun dries it and warms it. Where with strip till, you've got a tilled situation there that's a warmer, dry seed bed. When the seed bed's warm and dry, smearing is not an issue. Mm-hmm. It only is an issue, in my opinion, when the soil is too wet. Yeah. Number two was never plant in dual tracks, dual tire tracks. That's very true. Yep, because you've got a compaction issue right underneath there. It's hard for the real unit. Nowadays, they've got hydraulic downforce and things that might offset that a little bit. But then we didn't have that back then right. where that planter unit would, would ride up and you couldn't hold the depth. If you wanted to plant corn at two inches, you couldn't hold it in the wheel tracks. Mm-hmm. And so the strip till is another good thing because there was no wheel tracks ever planted in. Like a field cultivator, you got dual tracks wherever the cultivator ran. Right, And you can tell when a guy field cultivated a field too wet, those dual tracks from your tractor showed up two months later right. in the soybeans. It, it, it was really stuck out. And so with strip till, you never had to plant in a dual track or wheel track of any kind. Right. This is reminds me of another story I'm going to tell. And uh, with ridge tillers, uh, no, there's a lot of no tillers that used to badmouth and ridge till. They didn't see any use for it. You know? <laughs> and now we have strip till. So what were the ridge tillers doing? They were building on berms mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. planting on on berms. Yep. They were yep. doing controlled <laughs> traffic. Yes, they were. They were deep placing some fertilizer. And yep. all, all of a sudden, it, somehow ridge till seems to be the forerunner of strip till with all these benefits. Well, you know, when you look at it the way you said, that's exactly what it looks like. The only thing that soured people, we had a few people around here tried it way back, and the only thing that uh, soured them on that was the cultivating, right? row crop cultivating, right. where with the strip till, you laid the strip, planted the corn, and you were done. Yep. Sprayed, of course, but see, those guys would spray, but they'd also come back and cultivate, sometimes twice, because when they cultivated the first time, row crop cultivated, they tore the ridge kind of down next to the plant. The next time they built it back up and that kind of thing. Right. And so uh, there was a lot of manual cultivating involved in it. And that, that would, I guess, would be the major difference between uh, strip till and ridge till. Mm-hmm. More labored tents. Right. Well, one of the problems was they had livestock. And when they should have been cultivating, they should have been baling hay. Exactly. That's a good point. <laughs> right. We in the in the 90s did a ridge till newsletter, much like no-till farmer, for four or five years. And oh. We we were doing okay with it. We weren't getting rich or anything, but we finally gave up on it because I just didn't see how the acreage was going to grow. It was. Uh, mm-hmm. And of all the mailing lists we've ever used over the years, we got one from. Um, one of the Ridgetail companies, and my God, we got 10% of the people to send us money for a subscription. They were so hungry for information. And normally, oh. you know, normally if we get 1% or 2% off a mailing list, we're happy, but we got close to 10%. In fact, wow. I, I had decided we were going to do a Ridgetail newsletter, and we sent this mailing out, I think, just after Thanksgiving. And my idea was we're going to see how this works, and by Christmas time. If we get a good response, we'll do this. If we don't, we'll send the money back. Well, by Christmas, we had over a thousand subscribers to start with, and two days wow. before two days before Christmas, I knocked out the first newsletter, and we were off and running for four or five years. How about that? <laughs> right. 
<laughs> Number three on your list was no-till is environmentally sound, and a lot of people in Washington ought to like it. They should like it. They're always wanting to look at environment, especially today when they're looking at uh, carbon credits, trying to figure out how to measure carbon and some of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, one thing, you know, one thing or, uh, no-till does is it builds organic matter. Right. The uh, deep rip chisel plow certainly doesn't. It breaks organic matter down, and the no-till uh, farming increases organic matter. It protects that carbon that they're all talking about, trying to figure out, someone trying to figure out how to measure it accurately. And so, uh, yeah, uh, it definitely is uh, more efficient. The government ought to love every bit of it because that's the avenue they're going at this moment with all this carbon talk and climate change and things. Right. No-till, they ought to really, they ought to subsidize it with a little bit of money, which I think they may if they can measure the carbon properly. Right. What do you think? Can you uh, get set up where you could get carbon payments on the ground you work? Well, we're going to have to figure out who's going to pay it and how they're going to measure it because there's not a good way to measure it. I don't know if you saw the other day that Elon Musk, you know, that owns Tesla and SpaceX, about the richest guy there is right at the moment in the world. Right. He's offered a hundred, and you may have seen this, Frank. He offered a hundred million dollars for anybody to come up with an honest, good way to measure the carbon. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there's not a good way, or they would have it, and he wouldn't be offering the money. Right. And I think he's a pretty smart guy, and uh, obviously, and so he's wanting to offer a lot of money for somebody that can have a good, accurate way to measure that where they can pay to buy it, you know, for carbon credits, as they say. Right. So I think there's a lot yet. The, the book isn't written on that yet, but it's definitely stuff that the government appears to be liking. So, yes, they definitely like no-till. Right. Yes, yes. Well, it's like on one of the farms you got, if you were to get carbon payments for six or seven years, it's a little extra income. But then the landowner sells off to someone else, and it's a guy who does minimum tillage or something, and he comes in and works that ground. We probably have lost all this carbon that they've been paying you for for the past six or seven years. That's a good point. I think so. Good point. Right. Fuel savings with strip till versus conventional or minimum till. Yeah, like uh, with the corn, for example, you're going to strip till and plant your corn. We even strip tilled some beans through the years mm-hmm. just for fun of it to see. Well, we were actually putting some fertilizer under there uh, is what we were doing, stripping the head of the beans. Normally, you wouldn't do that, but we were trying to see if a few extra pounds of potash in a strip made a difference rather than, say, broadcasting it. That's that's another story. But, uh, yeah, it uh, it definitely saves money because you don't have to own a chisel plow. You don't have to own a soil finisher. You don't have to own all this extra equipment that you're paying for that you got to insure, you got to maintain. You're burning a lot of fuel. When you're running a big four-wheel drive tractor out there and it costs you $150 an hour to run it with fuel and, and just hour wear and tear on it, and you're pulling a chisel plow that costs you 80000 bucks or more, uh, right. all of a sudden uh, there's a lot of advantages to not do that. Right. We have we haven't owned a chisel plow for years. What the little bit we do, I was mentioning to you the one farm where we have to do it. My brother chisels it for us because we don't have a chisel plow. Sure. A deep tillage tool on our farm, and nor do I want one. <laughs> and so, uh, so we have to pay my brother to do that field for us, just because that's how it is for the moment. Right. So, in your strip till system, uh, how many trips would you make over the field? Walk me through the trips you make. Well, we just make the strip. Uh, the 
the trip with the strip bar would put on the like spring strip, we'd put on 28% nitrogen and the, and, the, and the dry fertilizer or liquid fertilizer, which the last few years we've been liquid fertilizer, P and K, real low salt. So we okay. go liquid and you put that on, that's all in one pass. And then the planter comes along and plants. And of course you also got spraying uh, on corn. We've been going to a herbicide program where we only spray once. We don't spray pre-plant. We spray after the corn's planted up to where it's four or five inches tall before we spray it. So one application with the sprayer takes care of all of the weeds uh, on the corn. So we've went away from even two sprayings on the corn. Mm-hmm. So we, we've got, you got, you got, you got tillage, you got the, uh, uh, you got the planting and then you got one spraying on it. We've been doing Y drops on nitrogen for a little extra nitrogen. That is a trip that we choose to make. Wouldn't have to, yeah. but we do it on our farm and we do it on, the majority of our acres, almost all of them. And uh, so they're what, three, four trips total, then yeah. you combine. And then if you made fall strips, you'd have another trip. Yeah, well, and then, then you, if you made the fall strip, you just wouldn't do any strips in the spring. Then right. you'd just start planting in the spring. So you'd still have that uh, about four trips total. The right. strip and the planting and the spraying and, you know, in our case, the Y dropping of the nitrogen. So are you into a traditional one-year corn, one-year soybean rotation, or you got some continuous corn, or what? We have no continuous corn. Uh, we dropped the continuous corn in 2009. We were in continuous corn on some farms uh, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And something happened, Frank, when they changed the genetics of corn. The corn yields in continuous corn dropped off drastically, dramatically. And something changed. We, we fertilized the same. We tilled the same. We did this. We did that. Strips were the same. Everything was the same. Then the corn yields after 09 started to fall away. And the only thing I can put my finger on, and this is only my opinion, somebody will say I'm crazy, and that's okay. <laughs> it's my opinion, is right. the fact that genetics in our corn changed that year. Mm-hmm. With the smart stack stuff, it's not built, in my opinion, for continuous corn. My opinion only. So we never go continuous corn anymore. Now, we do run a rotation uh, two-year beans sometimes. Sure. Corn, two-year beans, and then corn, but never more than two years of beans back-to-back because we've noticed we can plant beans two years in a row and we see no yield drag at all. Mm-hmm. But beans have been, the last five years or so, have been more profitable per acre than corn where I live. Sure. And so you go where the money is. Right. And so we've been running that one-year corn, two-year bean thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On corn and soybeans, are you buying stack varieties or uh, pick yes. and choose? Oh, you do. Okay. Uh, we buy stack. We buy stack varieties uh, for the corn. And of course, we're buying the the, the extend the flex type soybeans this year that we can do either dicamba or Liberty on. Mm-hmm. I, we are going to have some enlist beans. Uh, my son ordered. He's in charge of all that. I work for him now. So we're <laughs> going to have some enlist beans uh, that he's got on some farms. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of like you. I work for our son. He's running the company, and I work for him. But there also, you go. <laughs> also gives, gives me the opportunity to do pretty much what I want to do. And if you have well, a comp- here. and if I have, if we get a compliment for something, I take it. And if it's a problem, I tell people they got to go talk to him. I do the very same thing, Frank. You and I are on the same page there. I kind of like the ability of not having to make decisions anymore. <laughs> right. So you, har- you harvest uh, 
crop of soybeans in the fall and you're going to strip till it in the corn, where do you put the rows? In between the old soybean rows or on top of them or what? Both. Done both ways. Which Done works both best. Ways. Which works best. Doesn't seem, doesn't seem to matter. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to matter. It's a little easier to lay it between the old rows, but yeah. putting it on top of the, the the old row is not a problem either. Our Our strip bar, when we designed those row units, we did not ever use a swivel coulter. Okay. It was a rigid coulter from the get-go. It could flex up and down, but it did not swivel. And it's very easy. It's like having a whole bunch of rudders across there. It keeps the bar pretty straight. So it's easy to run on top of the old bean row, which is not ridged anyway, because, you know, it's no-till. But it it works either way. I don't see a problem either way in, in as far as your crop, a corn following, whether yeah. it's between them or on them. All right. So the next item was fertilizer savings, and because uh, you go to root zone banding, you get it down there where it wants. So there's some savings with fertilizer with strip till, right? Yeah, about half on the on the P and the K. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a big cut, big cut. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, nitrogen, we don't we don't scrimp on the nitrogen part. You got to have that, no matter how you call it. But the P and K, we found out by putting it in a small area, uh, you can get by with about half of what you were broadcasting because you're only covering the area where the corn is. You're not, you're not putting it in all those parts per million or billion, if you want to say of soil and spreading it out, you're putting it right where the plant can, can utilize it. Yeah. And so we, we feel that uh, the, the savings is well worth that. Yeah. And no yield drop. Oh, that's great. So the next one would be a spring strip till might make more sense. And in the fall, particularly when you're applying uh, nitrogen and some other fertilizers? Uh, particularly if you're using liquid nitrogen, uh, they don't like you to put that on in the fall in the strip. You have to put it on in the spring yeah. uh, with like 28%. But that that's the only only difference. And I think uh, the spring, again, is is it works better, I believe, in the flatter ground. On the hillsides, depending on the kind of winter you have, or early spring, you could get some erosion down the strips if you're because somewhere you got to go up and down the hill, yeah. and you could get some erosion in those situations. Uh, so the spring strip seems to be the best way to go. So uh, strip tills that shine in a, in a dry year or a wet year? Oh, I I think the yields shine better in a dry year because you haven't disturbed all that soil between the rows, and you still got residue there to hold the moisture. Mm-hmm in between the strips. So I think in a dry year, it does show up better than it does in a wet year. Now, one thing about a wet year, if you've got the strip laid, uh, that's the first thing that's going to warm and dry in a no-till situation, though. So that does complement the no-till planter because you've got that black strip eight or 10 inches wide that you're going to plant on, mm-hmm. uh, where you'd be forced to wait a few, several days in a wet spring before you can no-till. Last year, we had a wet spring. And we had these five inch, these 50 year rains at one time. And, and the no till, straight no till, uh, it, it had to wait. It had to wait several days before it would be, it would go in the yeah. neighborhood. So for all of us, yeah. Have you looked at uh, no tilling beans before you strip till corn in the spring? Yeah, we plant beans first now. We planted probably a fourth or better, about a third of our beans. This past year, we planted before we ever planted any corn. Mm-hmm. We try to plant them as early into April as we can, and then plant the corn. If you had your, you could pick and choose the days. I, I would plant the beans anywhere from the 10th to the 15th of April, and 
try to plant corn. The nice part would be if you could plant it in the last week of April. Sure. Sometimes the weather doesn't allow that, but that, that's the best, best case scenario would be that for us. What uh, kind of yield uh, gain would you get on soybeans planted three weeks earlier than after corn? I think if you can plant the soybeans earlier than than later, then we do that with the later maturities. We try to plant them early. And then the earlier maturity of beans, plant them after the corn because we're spreading our risk out. Right. But I, I I can tell you five to seven bushels on early planted beans, especially if we're in that three, six, three, seven uh, maturity range, we're better off to plant them early. I don't so are, see a great deal of difference in like a three one or a three two bean. I honestly can't see a big difference between April fifteenth and and May fifth either. So right. it's just the maturity of the bean. I well, from what I've observed. Are you in thirty inch rows? Uh, yes, sir. Corn and beans. Yes. And sir. do you use the same planter without any changes for both soybeans and corn? Correct. Okay. Yes. Um, next one was uh, different amount size by seasons. So if you're building in the spring, how wide, how tall will your berm be versus in the fall? In the fall, it's okay to build the berm a little taller and change the disc sealers in the back to roll the berm a little little higher. And, and that's the goal because you know it's going to winter and settle naturally. Mm-hmm. In the spring, you got to keep the berm a little bit shallower because it doesn't have any wintering. Yeah. And if you get the berm too high, and I've learned this, I've made this mistake, so I've learned this. Uh, you get the berm too high uh, in the spring, and you don't get them shallowed out in the back and shallow that berm height. When yeah. you go along with the row cleaner on the planter, you've rolled away the two inches that you really wanted, and now you're back planting in wet dirt again, wet mm-hmm. soil. So you want a shallower one, in my opinion, in the spring. Uh, if it's flat, I'm tickled with that. But right. you want a shallower one so that you don't have to roll hardly anything away. Your goal is to just maybe kick a few clods out of the way with the row cleaners and plant the corn. But if you get that thing mounted too much and it doesn't settle, you're going to have to move some soil because your depth is terrible for the row unit because your gauge wheels are trying to balance themselves on top of the mound mm-hmm. of the row unit. So shallow in the spring and a little bit taller in the fall is my response. Would you use a different knife between fall and spring? Yep. In the fall, we'd use a mole knife, but we used to call them, they still call them mole knives. Use that. But in the spring, you change and go to a more standard knife that's not as aggressive. Because right. the ground works easier in the spring anyway. So right. using just a standard, uh, like standard ammonia knife to mm-hmm. put it on, you know, in that application. Yes. Right. Yeah, not as aggressive. No. Right. Well, the next one is rolling baskets, but I want, I want to read a quote that you made back in 2009, and we'll talk about yep. it. Yeah. You said, I've worked with strip till for 20 years, and I've seen the devastation of what a basket can do in the fall if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> That's correct. So tell me about baskets in the fall versus the spring, et cetera. Baskets in the fall, they they have a hard time breaking up the clumps because the ground's a little bit harder coming off of the row unit and making the strip. You got to know what you're doing with the baskets in the fall because if you mash it down too hard in the fall with the baskets, and if you have that again, depends how much pressure you want to run on them. Some people have now got to where they're running a little looser and not putting a lot on them. If you squeeze that down in the fall, uh, you're going to have a divot in the ground next spring to plant in. I'll give you an example of where I learned Good. that when I was a little kid. 
My dad, one time, he had a tiling machine. We always did our own tiling on our farm growing up. My dad went out and he tiled uh, some, some some ground out there north of our house one day when I'm in school. I was about seventh or eighth grade. Dad, uh, he he tiled the field, you know, him and my, my uncle, and and he backfilled it, you know, with a nice windrow of right. dirt and everything, you know, and he didn't get all done. He said, hey, when you get home from school, <clears throat> he said, I got home. He said, change your clothes and go out there with the dirt blade and finish rolling the dirt into the rest of the tile ditch, you know, before yeah. supper. So I go out there and I did that. Man, I did a nice job and looked just like what he'd done ahead of that. Well, I thought, I'm going to help him. I'm going to drive the tractor down that mound of dirt, squeeze it down so it's nice and flat for next spring. Mm-hmm. So I drove on it. Now, you got, you're talking a 560 International, which doesn't weigh anything. So I'm not breaking tile, Frank. I'm yeah. just squeezing that nice hump down, making it look pretty. I was so yeah. proud of that. He come <laughs> home and he saw that, and he chewed on me. And he said, what in the world are you doing? I said, I'm making that so we don't have to mess with it next spring. He said, let me tell you something. He said, next spring, you're going to have a hole in the ground. I said, no, we didn't, we didn't add any or take any dirt away. We just, we just pushed the dirt back down in there on top of the tile you put in today. Yeah. We, we didn't change the dirt amount. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, next spring, we'll have a hole there. And Dad was right. <laughs> and so you take that same thing. If you squeeze that mound down too hard with a strip till bar, the next thing that happens, all of a sudden, over the winter and when spring rains come, now that soil, wherever it goes, it goes down, and now you've got a depression in the ground, and that's not where you want to plant. Sure. So right. baskets, if you don't treat them right in the fall, can can be a, a, a they can cause a problem if if you don't understand that that method. And again, I learned that from the old tile story. Mm-hmm. Well, the last point in this article we did, you were talking about equipment trains that don't work. Some of them would, would have a tractor, a liquid or dry fertilizer, a toolbar, and hydrous tack. Some could be 90 feet long out behind the front of a four-wheel tractor. So give me your thoughts about that. Well, equipment trains are very hard to hold straight to plant on. Mm-hmm. You get a tractor and you got a pull between with either liquid or dry fertilizer on it. Then you got your strip till bar behind it. Several manufacturers, when they come into the into the business, that's what they did. We never built that type of system. Our our toolbars that we built were built to carry the fertilizer right on board. Mm-hmm. So you had one implement behind a tractor. That was it. Right. You didn't have a train that you were dragging through the field. Now, if you had a farmer that wanted to put on dry fertilizer and he had our bar with a dry unit, he would have to pull an anhydrous tank maybe in the fall because there was no other choice. But the main thing was to keep the, the strip till bar as close to the tractor as you could so it didn't wander up and down uneven terrain. You wanted to keep them as straight as you could because you had to follow the same path next spring with the corn planter. Yeah. So long trains were very detrimental. I've seen trains uh, out in Iowa on some hillsides in north central Iowa where it was so bad that the guest rows, we call it, you know, between each pass actually touched. <laughs> on the side of the hill because right. the, the toolbar was so far from the tractor it was cutting the corner so to speak as it went around a around a curve or even on straight straight side of a hill right. so that was where i never believed that a long train and that was the selling point of why when we built our our model 6200 bars they all had onboard fertilizer it carried right on the toolbar mm-hmm. so you didn't have that long train to contend with Right. So it was easier to keep the rows straight and keep the guest row as accurate as you could from pass to pass. Right. Yep. Well, 
I've seen some of these long trains up in Western Canada and Alberta and oh. Manitoba, Saskatchewan, but you know, it's a, it's a one-time deal up there with them, uh, not having this the combine can tackle anything a wheat arrive, but some of those are just huge and they go forever. And then some of the car, grain carts, it's practically a two-story building that they're pulling in behind it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So yep. looking looking ahead at strip till, what innovations do you think we still need, or what will people come up with that's new for strip till? I think the biggest innovation is uh, that we have got to be able to uh, steer the toolbar to make okay. that toolbar as accurate as we can, and I think we also need to complement that with the ability to steer the planter to stay on the strip. Mm -hmm. not everybody's fields in the country are like a pool table. Right. The flatter they are, the easier the job is. Right. When we got both kinds of ground, so we see both sides of the story, but I think we need to have the ability uh, to uh, steer the toolbar. Uh, I have one patent that does that, mm -hmm. that steers the toolbar and keeps it straight. And so you got GPS and a receiver, antenna, receiver, on the toolbar and you got one on the tractor and then that that uh, would steer them both and keep a straight line then you can duplicate the same thing with with the corn planter now when we get to that where we're steering both implements it'll be real easy to keep it right on the center every time within an inch of the center right right with rtk technology right technology's there uh, it's just a matter of getting the hardware to do it yeah, yeah. yep well, we've talked about an hour. We've really, uh, I see why we can call you the grandfather of strip till because it's an honor <laughs> that's innovative, well-deserved. Well, I, I appreciate it. I grew up on a livestock farm like you did and milking uh -huh. cows and lugging hay bales is what made me an editor. My dad used, <laughs> my, my dad used to say, you just decided it was easier to tell farmers what to do rather than do the work yourself. So. Hey, I'm with you. Amen. <laughs> right. And I've been I've been on farms in all 50 states, and I've never been on a farm that I didn't learn something. There were wow. Farms, there were farms I didn't learn a lot or saw something that shouldn't be done, but it's been great. So well, that's I will, great. Yeah, I will let you go. Thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. You bet. Good to hear from you, Frank. Okay. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener question. So we've been doing this today with Rich Fulmer, who was formerly at Progressive Farm Products in Hudson, Illinois, and now farming 2,500 acres or so of his son. And it reminded me of how he had spoken at the National No-Tillage Conference a couple of times and in 2009 was named one of the No-Till Innovator Award winners for his work with Strip-Till. So someone had asked me lately if there had been any ideas that came up at the National No-Tillage Conference that didn't seem to catch on. And over the years, over practically 30 years, there's been a number of them. But it reminded me of one from... Uh, 1997, and I went back, and it was talking about deep banding starch pays with no-till. And John Walker told attendees that deep banding starch had the potential to increase yields with almost any no-till crop. And he was an agronomist at Rick's College in Rexburg, Idaho at the time, and he suggested that attendees use granulated starch rather than powdered starch 
Mix it with starter fertilizer and deep band the mixture with the planter at a rate of at least 20 pounds of granulated starch per acre. So he saw a payoff for this, but what's interesting is three or four months later, he called me and said, don't write anything about this starch product because someone, I don't know whether it was someone giving him a research grant or what, was complaining that he shouldn't be talking about it. So there's an idea that had some potential at the time, but kind of disappeared when we got pressure from industry. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Rich Fulmer for today's conversation, and thanks to our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.